I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Before long the world will not see me any more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now this morning what I would like for you to do with me is open your Bible, pick up a Bible. I'd like for you to, to follow through with me because we're going to be looking in the New Testament, in the, in the Gospels. We're going to start out with John 14 and, and then we're going to switch over to the beginning of the book of John and from there we're going to go to the book of Luke. But anyway, if it would, I think it would be a better journey for you with, with us this morning if you would... Uh, Follow along in your Bibles with the accounts that I'm going to be referring to. I won't be reading all of the text, but I'll be, I'll be referring to some of the text. That You'd probably want to see that in print as I go along. Now the text we read was John chapter 14, verse 18 through 23. When Jesus was preparing to leave his apostles... And he was promising to them that he was going to return. He was coming back. And he was going to come back by sending the, the Comforter, which was the Holy Spirit. But in this context, Jesus said at verse 23 to them, he said, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Now that tells us that Jesus is going to come to the individual who loves him and obeys his commandments. And in the book of Revelation, chapter 3 at verse 20, the text says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. So basically, Jesus is making the promise to come into our lives. And in Revelation chapter 3, he's actually talking about coming into our lives in a very personal and intimate sort of way. He's going to sup with us. He's going to take a meal with us. So we know that when we obey the gospel of Jesus Christ and when we open our hearts to him, we're actually inviting him into our lives. We're asking him to come into our lives and be part of us and a part of everything that we do, and actually inviting him into that space we usually reserve for those that we are most, the most intimate with. We're asking him to come in and share with us, and we'll share with him our lives. Now, in doing that, and thinking about that, I've thought about it several times, and I've come to the conclusion that there are several texts in the New Testament, several instances in the New Testament, in the Gospels, in the life of Jesus, where he actually was invited into someone's home, actually asked to come into their home. 
their physical home, come into their presence and be there as a guest. Now, the majority of these we'll look at in the book of Luke, and that's why I ask you to open, to open your Bible and follow along with us. But we're going to start out with one in the book of John in chapter 2. Now, what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to go through what happened on those occasions when Jesus was invited into someone's inner circle, that is, in their home, when he was invited, and then what took place during that session, and what happened with them. And then I'm going to say, let's talk about the lesson we learned from that incident and see how it applies to our lives. If, in fact, we were in the similar situation and Jesus was in our home or we were with him in that situation, what would, what would we get from that story? Now, the reason I did that is because in the life of Jesus, he's teaching us in a number of different ways. We know that he sat on the mount and he spoke, and, he, and we can read this dissertation that he has in the book of Matthew, in beginning in chapter 5 through chapter 7, Sermon on the Mount. We can read that dissertation. And on other occasions, we can read what he was saying. But sometimes he just tells a story, like in a parable. And so after he tells the story... Then we look at the story and say, okay, how does that apply to me? That's what he's saying. Now, that's why I think when we look at the incidences, when Jesus was in someone's home together with them, or others were with him in a public place that was in an intimate environment, how does that impact us? In other words, we see what it did to them, how it involved them. How does it involve us if we are in a similar situation? And I really think that's why these stories are there, the incidents. So we're looking at the stories and we're saying, what do we get out of these stories? How do I make my application of this? So the first one I want to look at is not a home, as it were. It probably was, but basically it's, it's talking about a fairly public event in John chapter 2. When Jesus was in Cana of Galilee, if you want to look at that text with me, it actually begins at verse 1. And it says, The third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. That, now that's basically all we hear about or know about what was going on. There was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. And it apparently was a public event. To some degree, some people were invited. Apparently, Jesus' mother was invited, and then it says Jesus and his disciples came. Now, we, we know that there was a wedding taking place, and we know that there was food and drink that was served, as it usually is at a wedding. We know very little else about this. What we do know is that, that Jesus' mother, Mary, came to him and said, they're running out of wine. What can you do to help? And Jesus said uh, he, he asked the question, why, why did she come to him? But anyway, she asked him to help the, with the situation. And so he turned water into wine, which is a, 
which is a very uh, famous illustration that we know about throughout the pages of the New Testament. But anyway, he turned the water into wine. And then at the conclusion of this text, it says, at, and if you'll read with me in verse 9, when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not where it came from or whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and said unto him, Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but you have kept the good wine until now. So all we know about this situation is this, that Jesus was apparently an anonymous guest. No one knew much about him. His mother knew he was there. The governor of the feast didn't know much about it. The bridegroom didn't know much about his presence there. But Jesus was there and he responded to a situation of need and he took care of the, of the need. He took care of the problem. It's often easily overlooked, I think. Now here's the, here's the lesson I get from this. Jesus was there, apparently not had no notoriety at all. He was just there. His mother came to him and presented a problem. He solved the problem. And the governor said, hey, this was great. This is wonderful. But no one thanked him for it. No one brought him to the forefront and said, hey, this, this is the one who's responsible for this. He was just there anonymously. They really didn't realize what the presence of Jesus meant to them until something good happened. So I'm thinking, well, how would that fit my situation? And I'm thinking, it's easy to overlook how beneficial the presence of Jesus is in any situation. And certainly, if he's in my home, it would be easy for me to overlook how beneficial his, just him being there is to me, whether I know he's there or not, whether I recognize him or not, whether I elevate him or not, in any way, what a wonderful thing it is just to have him there. Well, now let's go to the book of Luke. Luke has, uh, has included the majority of these instances where Jesus was in the uh, situation where he was invited into someone's home. And so we'll start with Luke chapter 5. And from verse 27 to 32, the text tells us, about the time that he was invited into a man's house who was a uh, publican. His name was Levi, and we, we know also from other texts that Levi was Matthew. And so when, when uh, he called Levi to come and follow him, Levi was at his table collecting taxes or at his business uh, address, wherever he was, and so when Jesus called Levi to follow him, then Levi invited Jesus to come into his home for a feast. And that's what the text tells us. That he made a great feast in his own house, and there was a great company of publicans and others that sat down with him. Now that's not the only people that were there. But it says that he was invited to share the meal, and in addition to this, he was the guest of honor. Jesus was the guest of honor. That's why Levi had him. So he brought him in. 
And he had a great meal, and, and involved in this meal were publicans and sinners, a great number of people, but also there were some Pharisees. Now, I'm not really sure how this went in that day and time, but apparently when people gave dinners or made feasts, honorary feasts, that they just sort of opened the doors and a lot of people came. Well, some of the other people that came were called Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees. They came. Now, Pharisees, the Pharisees were not just ordinary Israelites. They were individuals who, who were high on the ethical and religious standard of the Israelites. They were Pharisees. They had a certain concept that they had about the law, and they were supposed to be very rigorous in their application of the law, and they, they were prominent among the religious folks of their day. So while they were eating, the Pharisees got together with the disciples of Jesus, and they began to murmur about Jesus and make criticism. They were criticizing Jesus. And what they were criticizing him about was that he was eating, he was fraternizing with the publicans and sinners, the common people, the people that actually were not on the same ethical or social level of the Pharisees and others of that day. So they were criticizing. They were being critical of Jesus. Here they were in a feast, and these guys got the disciples aside and said, look here, what's wrong with your, with your master? Look what he's doing. He's fraternizing with these people. He's, he's uh, hobnobbing with the lower classes. And Mark chapter 2, verse 15 and 16 says, it came to pass that at Jesus said at meat in his house, it's the same context now, Many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. So there were a lot of them there. Levi made a big dinner for everybody. Remember, though, Jesus was the guest of honor. And so what's happening is that the Pharisees and the scribes are are looking at the guest of honor, and they're mummering or muttering to the disciples and criticizing the guest of honor being critical. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, how is, it, how is it that he eats and drinks with publicans and sinners? One thing I learned a long, long time ago is that when you're at a dinner table, that is no time for criticism. That's no time to fuss. That's no time to fight. That's no time to bicker. And all the psychologists in the, that are worth anything of their merit will tell you this, that you do not want to disturb your guest or your friend or your family with controversy at the dinner table. And yet here these guys were. They were criticizing Jesus, but not to his face. They were complaining to the disciples and they were, they were saying that Jesus was eating with the lowly, and this was, this was uh, being critical of their misguided prohibitions. Nothing in the law actually said that they could not eat with different ones. But they were, they were making that social standing a law and making it an issue. So what do I get from this? Well, I get if Jesus is in my home, and if he's at my table, and he is if he's in my life, then at the dinner table, I do not want to be critical of anyone in any sense. I, I do not want to be complaining and criticizing 
anybody, and certainly I, I wouldn't want to be criticizing Jesus or finding fault with anything that he has to do with my life. Well, that's what I get. You may get something else. Let's look in Luke chapter 7 now. Jesus was asked by a group of men called elders to help, help do something. Because there was a man called, and I'm going to put this chart on the board too. There was a man called a, a centurion. He was a centurion of the, of the Roman band. And he did not personally know Jesus. This man didn't know Jesus. But he had heard about him. And, and Luke chapter 7 details the story of how that he wanted Jesus to come help him with the uh, uh, issue he had in his home. And the issue he had was that he had a, a servant that he was extremely fond of. He, he loved this servant. And the servant was sick. And he knew that Jesus was a, a broad character, sympathetic character. And he knew that Jesus was in the area. And he knew that his servant was sick and ready to die. And that's what the text tells us in, in the first ten verses of Luke chapter 7. He was ready to die. And so he called the elders of Israel, thinking these people would know Jesus because Jesus was an Israelite. And so he asked the elders to go to Jesus and ask him to come to his house and heal his servant. So, the centurion sent ambassadors to Jesus to ask, to ask for that favor. Now, it's interesting to me that, that, they, that the uh, centurion sent the elders of Israel to Jesus because they really didn't have anything to do with him. They would almost be the last ones that I would ask to go to Jesus and ask him for anything. They'd never ask him into their home. They'd never had him around. They were highly critical of him. The leaders in Israel were suspicious of Jesus, yet they knew he was capable of doing some wonderful things. So, it says that they, they uh, came to Jesus, and here's what they said. They said uh, at verse 4, they came to Jesus and they besought him instantly. In other the, the words, they were urgently asking him. And they said, he's, he's worthy for whom he should do this. So they're asking Jesus for favor. They said, he loves our nation and he has built us a synagogue. So they're saying, do him a favor because he's done us a favor. He's been good to us. We want you to be good to him. So it was uh, someone who knew a man who knew a man who could know a man who could help them. That's what they're asking. So then Jesus went with them. And it says, and this text says that the, the people had never asked, who had never asked anything of Jesus himself, they were asking him a favor for someone they wanted help for. Not understanding the nature of the Lord, he would have done it regardless whether this centurion loved the nature nation or not. He would have helped him if he was asked. So, this was not the centurion's attitude though. When when Jesus started out, the centurion sent word back and said, no, he doesn't have to come help me. He doesn't have to come to my house. Just tell him what the problem is. Just speak the word, which Jesus did. Of course, okay. Now, here's the, here's the 
question in my mind. The centurion, the centurion was noble in all of this. He he really didn't didn't intend to be seeking a special dispensation of favoritism from Jesus. He just wanted his servant healed if he could, if Jesus would. The uh, the elders thought that maybe they could get something out of Jesus. They could get him to do some special service for them because they were getting some benefit from the centurion. Inviting Jesus into our house for an advantage is inappropriate. So, let's just assume that some terrible thing has happened in our home, in our life. And we haven't had much to do with Jesus up until this point. But now then, we've exhausted all our resources. And what we need is something special done for us. So we're going to go to Jesus in a prayer and ask him if he will do something good for us. Because maybe we made a big gift to the church not long ago. Maybe the church can come and ask us to pray to Jesus and he can help us. Come into our home for an advantage. So I'm, I'm seeing that as that sort of a thing that, that warns me that if I'm going to ask Jesus into my home, I want to make sure that's not for an advantage for myself or for someone else. Anyway, that's how I view that. Now, in, in this same chapter, in Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 36 through the, the uh, end of this, this text, actually, it's 36, I think it's down through about verse 46 in Luke chapter 7. He was invited into the house of a Pharisee. And uh, this, this Pharisee's name was Simon, we'll learn in this context. And when he was invited in, he was invited as a guest. Now, as you read this text in Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 36, it says that one of the Pharisees invited or desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, which she, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet, behind him. So the first thing that, that jumps into my mind is why did they ask Jesus to come into his house? Why did Simon ask him to come? And what happened when the lady came in? Now again, these, these meals were something that apparently were open enough that people could come and go. And this woman heard that he was there and she came. We, we generally recognize that this was Mary Magdalene. But she came and she had an alabaster box and she came up behind Jesus. He was sitting somewhere. And what I want to tell you at this point is that he was in all likelihood not the guest of honor. He was there to be examined. People were going to talk to him and ask him and see what he knew and and how he was going to react under certain circumstances. They, they didn't have him there to make him feel important. They didn't have him there to make sure that he knew that he was precious, that he was good, that he was, he was an honorable man. They had him there to examine him. And one of the reasons you can see that is that somehow he was sitting where this woman had come up behind him. 
he was certainly not sitting at the guest of honor. He wasn't sitting up at the dais, as we were calling, as we'd call it. He wasn't. He wasn't somewhere special. So she came up and she began to wash his feet. Now what happened was Simon was watching him. Everybody, as a matter of fact, everybody was watching him. The, the question that comes into my mind is, why have him there? Why invite him into your home? Why bring him into your, your, your life? Because they wanted to see what he was going to do. They wanted to look at him. They wanted to find out what sort of man he is. And so Simon looked at him and he said, when he saw the woman washing his feet with her tears and wiping them with her hair, he said, if this man had known. So what he was thinking was, he was examining Jesus. He was wondering, what, what, what sort of powers does this guy have? They, were, they had him under a microscope, basically. Simon did, for sure. So he was looking at him, and, and all of a sudden he said, uh, if, if, if he knew what sort of woman this was, he wouldn't let her touch him. If he knew that she was a... Obviously, she was a prostitute. He said uh, he, if he knew what manner of this was, he wouldn't touch him, for she's a sinner. And so then Jesus launched into an explanation of this. He said, Simon, I'm going to ask you something. There were two people, two creditors, and he described one creditor that owed a great deal, another owed a very little, and he, he forgave both of them. He said, which, which one of these would be the most appreciative, basically? And then Simon said, well, of course it would be the one that you forgave the most for. And then Jesus explained how he had been treated in that home. Here's what he said. Here's how you treated me. He said at verse 45, or let's see, at verse, verse 44, he said unto the woman, he said unto Simon, do you see this woman? I entered into your house and you gave me no water for my feet. He wasn't an honored guest. He wasn't even an appreciated guest. He said, you didn't give me water for my feet. That was a common courtesy in that time, and especially for someone who was an honored guest. But she's washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. He said, you gave me no kiss. You didn't even, you didn't even welcome me. But this woman, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil you didn't anoint, but this woman has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I said, you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. She loved much, for to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. So he, he just explained that to them. So, he was treated shabbily in her house, in, in Simon's house, I mean. And, don't, and I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, well, if I'm going to ask Jesus in the most intimate part of my life, and certainly to sit at my table with me and with my family, how am I going to treat him? Well, I'm not going to treat him shabbily. If I'm going to treat him shabbily, then I think it would be better if I didn't even invite him into my home. That's kind of what I get from it. Simon would have been better off to have avoided this situation. Now in chapter 8, Jesus was asked to, into a, in Luke chapter 8, he was asked to come into the home of a man by the name of Jairus. Jairus had a daughter, 12-year-old daughter, and the daughter was sick. And the, the text says in, in Luke chapter 8, beginning at verse 40, 
the people gladly received him and they were all waiting for him. And then there came a man named Jairus and he was a ruler of the synagogue. He fell down at Jesus' feet and besought him that he would come into his house. For he had one only daughter about 12 years of age and she lay dying. Now, Jesus went with the man and his wife. And, it, and it, it, beginning at verse 49, a ruler came, one of the rulers from the, from the synagogue's house, said, your daughter's dead, don't trouble the master. But Jesus went anyway. Jairus was asking, Jairus and his wife, were asking Jesus to come into his house and help him because his daughter was sick. They needed help. When he got there, here's, here's some things that sometimes will escape us. When he got there at verse 42, of course, the, the girl died. It says, All wept and bewailed her, but he said, Weep not, she is not dead but sleeps. And they laughed him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. Now, we, we read that and think, Well, that, that, was, uh, that was unkind. Why would they laugh Jesus to scorn? But they did. They scorned him. They made fun of him. And what did Jairus and his wife do when they did that? Jairus and his wife said nothing. They said nothing. They didn't say, this is our friend. This is the one we came to ask for help. You shouldn't mock him. You shouldn't scorn him. They didn't say anything. Jesus is the one that took all those scorners and told them to leave the room. But Jairus and his wife did not defend Jesus. They didn't stand up to the scorners and rebuke them. Jesus had to move the people out himself and get everything quiet. And then he raised the girl from the dead. And what's amazing to me is that at verse 56, when she was raised, her parents were astonished. They were astonished. Why were they astonished? They, they sent to Jesus to raise her from the sickness. They were astonished. I wonder, when they asked Jesus to come and help them, did they actually believe that He could do it? Did they have any confidence in Him? These are questions that pop into my mind. Do you think these things too? Did they really believe that He could do it? If they did, why were they astonished? If they had confidence in Jesus, if they had trust in Jesus, why did they let their friends mock Him and scorn Him? So, when I look at this story, I say, well, what, what would be my reaction? Jesus is in my presence, and Jesus has done so many good things. What if people that I'm around begin to mock Jesus and make fun? Say things about Him. What do I do? Do I just be quiet and let them do it? Or do I say, hey, leave the room. If you don't believe in Jesus, if you don't love Him, if you don't, if you don't care about Him, I do. And I brought Him into my home for a reason. And He has done what He promised He would do in my home. He's forgiven my sins. He's raised me up. He's given me a new life. And He's blessed me in so many ways. I don't want you deprecating Him at all. But they didn't do that. Now, 
Jesus also went into the home, and we're going to look in Luke chapter 10, and we'll just we'll leave that one at that point. Jesus had some, friend, had some real close friends, really, that uh, sometimes one, one of them asked him into his home. He had uh, some close friends, the, the three young people, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And you remember Lazarus is the young man that Jesus raised from the dead. And it was during that occasion that we understand that Jesus actually loved this little family. Anyway, in Luke chapter 10, verse 38 through 42, we're told that, that Jesus was invited into the home of Mary and Martha. At verse 38, it says, It came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister named Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet, and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about with much serving, and came to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, you are careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken from her. Okay, Jesus was comfortable coming into the home of Mary and Martha and talking about the kingdom. He actually had a Bible class, if you want to call it that. Came into Martha and Mary's house, and he set up and began to teach. And all of a sudden, Martha got busy tending to the guests and taking care of different things and running around, and, and she was sort of harried and frayed and, and uh, frustrated. And she said, well, here Mary is sitting at, the feet, at your feet, and she needs to be helping me serve. Well, the purpose of Jesus' coming was not for a convivial meeting. It was for a Bible class. Came, came to teach the Word. And so Jesus said, you need to put first things first. The first thing is you need to hear about, hear about the kingdom anyway. She got busy acting as a hostess and ignored the most important matters at hand. She wanted Jesus to referee between her and her sister. He said, she said, come and he said, she said, come and rebuke my sister Mary because he's not helping. Sometimes, as I look at this, it's just a little short incident. Sometimes I look at this and I think, somebody, often we have to choose between entertainment and necessities. And the necessity at this point was hearing about the kingdom, and that's what they were there for. Not for the entertainment, but for the hearing of the world. Jesus was invited one time also to, to uh, eat in the house of a chief Pharisee on the Sabbath day. Now that's an interesting thing to me. In Luke chapter 14, on the Sabbath day is when everybody came together in Israel in the synagogues. And in those synagogues, they spread out the big scrolls and they had someone read from the scriptures and they discussed that, talked about it and talked about what it meant. So in Luke chapter 14, in the first four verses, the text says that uh, it came to pass as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day that they watched him. So after they had their meeting where they were studying the scriptures, the Pharisee, the chief Pharisee, the one who was head of everything, asked Jesus to come into his house and eat. Now that seemed hospitable, didn't it? And it says, Behold, while he was there, look what happened. There was a certain man before him which had the dropsy. 
And Jesus answering spoke unto the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And they held their peace. And he took him and healed him and let him go. And they answered and answered them, saying, Which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? They could not answer him again to these things. So, it says they watched him again. They brought Jesus into an intimate situation of, of a meal, which is an intimate situation for any of us. They brought him into a meal, and then they watched him. What is this man going to do? Now, that would seem to be uncomfortable to me if someone brought me to, to their home and then set up a situation where they thought I might act or react one way or the other and watch me, that would make me extremely uncomfortable. And I'm sure it did Jesus as well. The situation arose where they actually, they, somebody heard that Jesus was there and they brought a man there who had the dropsy or what we sometimes call elephantitis. He was swollen in ways where he could hardly walk. And he was healed. Perhaps the meal was designed to humiliate Jesus. I just wonder how the guy got in there. And all of a sudden I'm beginning to think, well, it says they watched him. So they probably brought him for a meal under the guise of entertaining him and then set up a situation to see how he would perform, what he would do. Jesus asked the lawyer that stinging question. And the question was, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? So he deflected the attention away from himself. Now I know that they set him up. I can see that. Now this short section does not give you that much information that they set him up. But if we read on, Jesus continued his teaching. And if we read on at verse 7, he put a parable to them. And in the parable, he says this. He says, uh, To them which were bidden, he, he marked how they chose out the chief rooms. So when they brought Jesus in, they all took the chief rooms. They all took the best seats in the house. And I don't know where they put him. But they didn't put him with the elite. They didn't seat Jesus as a guest of honor. And it's very apparent from what he's saying that they did not. He said, when you're bidden to a feast, a wedding feast, don't sit down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than you be bidden of him. He that bade you and him come and say to you, give this man place, and you begin to shame to take the lowest room. So the lowest room would be the room of shame, and that's where they put Jesus. He said, but when you're bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room, and when he that bade you come, he may say unto you, friend, go up higher. Then thou shalt have worship in the presence of them that set at meat with him. For whosoever exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. Then he talked about the fact that when you make a dinner, don't invite those who are going to invite you and have you back. Invite the poor and the lowly and the meek and the dispossessed and so forth. So I know that when they brought Jesus there, they brought him there to see if he could perform in the way they wanted him to perform. They set him up, basically. And as a result of this, he addressed their desires for attention 
and he, he exposed them for what they were doing. But, but the idea is, when we invite Jesus into our lives, are we asking him the same sort of questions? Are we putting him on display and saying, Lord, can you do this for me? Really? Are you capable? Can you fill my needs? Can you make sure that I have enough to eat? Have enough to wear? Have enough places to lay my head? Can you, can you take care of this? Well, that's, that's of course, what the, the uh, implication I get from this. And then Jesus was invited into the home of Simon the leper in John chapter 12. This is the one that's not in Luke. There's another one in John chapter 12, and it's not, in, not uh, detailed enough here for us. But there was a man in Bethany just before the death of Jesus. In John chapter 12, beginning of verse 1, it says, Six days, Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, which had been dead, and he raised the dead. There they made him a great supper. And Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikered, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the anointment of the ointment. Then said one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why was not this ornament sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? Then he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bear what was put therein. Then Jesus said, let her alone against the day of my burial has she kept this. For the poor always you have with you, but me you have not always. So several things happened here that I think are important lessons for us. If we're going to invite Jesus into our lives, just like they did, they invited Jesus. And this was the, the home of Simon the leper. And we find out that he is a leper. He was a leper from the accounts found in Matthew 26 and Mark 4, chapter 14. But Martha was there. That was one of his little friends. And Lazarus was there. And it appears as if this, this uh, Mary Magdalene, Mary was there, and this is probably Mary Magdalene, and she appeared to anoint his head and his feet with costly ointment. This text says he, she anointed his feet. The other texts tell us that she anointed his head. So he had anointment all over him. Then she wiped his feet with her hair. He accepted her efforts to prepare his body for the grave. And then this text says that everywhere this gospel was preached, that story will be told. And it is. But during this situation, Judas Iscariot observed this. And he had the bag. He carried the bag. He carried the, the amount that they, they, they kept with them. So we often wonder how they were able to buy things as we, they went along. It was because they had a treasurer. And Judas was the treasurer. And he carried the money so that if they needed something, they would buy it in the marketplace and so forth. He had the bag, and so he made the statement that we could sell this, and we could take that money and give to the poor. Well, of course, Jesus knew he had no such intention of giving that money to the poor. As a matter of fact, he said, you always have the poor. If you want to help the poor, you can help them. They're always there. He said, but this woman has, has prepared my body. But the thief, Judas, who was also the betrayer of Jesus, felt that this was extraordinary. Extravagant. His hope of profit was disappearing 
as that ointment was disappearing. He wanted to sell it. He wanted the money. He was entrusted with it because he was feeling like he was going to make something of it. And I look at this and I think, well, this was, this was quite, a, quite something that the woman did. And as we understand it, this type of anointment that was used to prepare people for burial was costly. And this text says it was costly. It was, uh, it was expensive. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, well, when I ask Jesus into my home, am I looking for an advantage of some nature? Am I wanting to take advantage of his presence? Am I wanting to, because he's in our, my home, am I wanting, uh, looking for an advantage to make money? You, you say, well, how could that happen? Well, very simply, my friends, uh, Jesus has become the object of uh, profitable enterprise all over the world. People, because they think he's in your home, will appear on TV and ask you to send money because they want you to express your appreciation that he's there and send money to you, to them. They're wanting to profit. They want to profit from his presence. And there are some people who believe if they can identify themselves with you, with Jesus, as being the one who's the same with you, that they can actually sell you something based on that. They can advertise their business, that they're believers, therefore they're believers and you're believers. You ought to do business with them and trust them in their business. So it's a business enterprise. If I'm going to have Jesus in my home, then I look at this and I think, I should not have Jesus in my home in order to make merchandise of his presence. Well, that's the last one I'm going to talk to you about. There's only, but there's one, one left. There's one instance left of Jesus coming into the home. Coming into the life of an individual. His presence. And it hasn't been written yet completely. The story hasn't. Because it involves you. When he comes into your home. And you invite him into the most intimate circle of your life. You're inviting him into your heart. You're saying, come live with me, Jesus. Come into my home. I want, I want to give you the place of prominence. I want you as my honored guest. I'm just saying, all I'm saying is, if you invite Jesus into your life, you want him into your home, you want him in all areas, even, even in that place that you think is your personal space. If you want him there, how will you treat him? How do you treat him? How will you treat him as your guest?